we'll start with a question that's going to sound weird and then will reveal itself in about two or three minutes. Uh, but do you remember how many times you cried after watching the Cubs win the World Series in Game 7 out of curiosity? I'm still doing it. Nice. Every time I, I cannot watch the final outs of that game without crying. And we're not talking like kind of cute crying. We're talking like full on sobbing on my couch, like chest heaving. Like, I can't believe that happened. It is quite literally as a person who is not married and doesn't have kids. It is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> it is better than my college graduation. It is better than my high school graduation. It is better than moving to Boston or moving to Chicago or anything else that has ever happened to me. The Cubs winning the World Series. That That is the best possible endorsement. The Cubs winning the World Series better than moving, everybody. Uh, so the, <laughs> yeah, uh, Specifically, do you remember any specific moments that night that triggered tears uh, is what I'm uh, trying to get at here. I'll go. Um, and I'll go ahead and say that I'm married and have three kids. And that was possibly one of the best things that happened to me. So there you go. <laughs> Probably a collective groan right there. And I couldn't care less. No, um, that's good. That makes me feel less like I'm missing out on the whole married with kids thing. No, no, I no. never yeah. feel that way. like I, I'm perfectly happy being single and no guy has come into my life to change my mind on that yet. But uh, Listen, that, that, that makes me feel better. <laughs> I'm not shy about telling the people that are involved with that either. I'm not shy about that. And they know too. So um, but I will say that probably the first time that I, the, the first event that happened in game seven that made me cry um, was Dexter Fowler's home run. Oh, For geez. some reason that to me just felt like if that can happen that quickly in a game that was such a, you know, like you felt like every little play, every pitch, every little detail was going to be important in the long run of that game. If you think about it, there's a few of those moments that obviously we only won by one run. But to me, that was like, I, I mean, I, I literally, I had tears already at that point. I was like, this just feels really right. Like something this going this right so soon in this game just felt really, really right. Now, of course, that was a roller coaster that we were all on for the entire game. But that moment, I, I definitely shed tears. That was where it one, started. <laughs> one batter in. My God, you you beat all of us by, by a mile. That is, that is the equivalent of the 2016 Cubs, like, divisional games ahead finish for, for everybody else at that point. That's, wow. Yeah, so I, I didn't quite uh, cry that quickly. I, I had three distinct crying moments that night, and this is going to lead into, like, the, the point of this entire podcast. The first one was obviously after going to be a tough play, Bryant, the Cubs win the World Series. And that was the gut sob in front of the TV where I would just collapsed nearly into the fetal position. And, and three minutes just kind of had like the past 37 years of Cubs baseball pouring out of my eyes at the same time to make it, you know, nice and metaphorical and poetic. The second time uh, was shortly after that when they lifted up David Ross at the end of his interview on camera and kind of took him around in the victory lap. And that was a, just a moment of, yeah, you cannot end your career better than this. And my God, it, it just kind of hit me again in that moment. And the third time wasn't until probably about an hour and a half after all of that, after we'd gone away from the national coverage and switched to the local locker room. And I just remember there being a scene of one of like, I think the Comcast Sportsnet reporters uh, doing an on-camera shot with random locker room stuff in the background. And I see popping up in the background, Ryan Sandberg, champagne bottle in hand, wearing a Chicago Cubs 2016 World Series champion t-shirt. 
cool. And I just lost it at that point. That that was the the moment of not just that this team had done it, but this was the entirety of Chicago Cubs baseball had arrived at that moment. And it was like a vin- it was like if you could put my childhood there in that locker room, it would have looked exactly like that. And I, I, my emotions just couldn't contain it. I, I got verklempt again. Uh, do, do you remember any moments of that? Do you, did you see Sandberg during the, the post-game locker room at all? I have to confess, I did not see much of the post-game when it happened because, as you both know, but your listeners probably don't, uh, I watched that game at Bernie's. I, I'm like a huge introvert, and I tend to watch both games on my, like most games on my couch. But for some reason, the World Series games, I was like, you are not going to watch these games by yourself on your couch. You're going to watch these games out with people somewhere. And so I wound up at Bernie's. It was one of the few bars in Wrigleyville that wasn't charging a cover. I got there at 310 to get a spot, and I was one of the, I was one of the last people they let in the bar. So if you remember, the game started at like 610 Central Time or 710 or whatever. Anyway, you had to be there four hours early <laughs> to get yourself a spot into this place. And, and I, so I was there. They actually did a champagne shower of the bar at Bernie's. And I don't remember much of the post-game stuff because by then they had turned the music on. I stayed there for maybe 40 minutes after with people. I hung out with strangers. Multiple people bought me shots. I don't know them, but that was fun. Thank you, people who bought me <laughs> random shots of alcohol that I like never drink. I'm not really a shots person. <laughs> um, and then I walked home. And by the time I got home, it was like, I don't even know. It was probably, it was, it was well after midnight. People were driving down the streets all around Wrigley Field, honking and yelling and screaming, go Cubs, go. And I was convincing my mother that I had not died in Wrigleyville because my <laughs> at some point during the game, the, fo- the phone lines, the cell towers around Wrigleyville were so clogged that nobody could get through. And so I just thought people were being nice and they like didn't want to haze me about Rajai Davis's home run or anything. But no, they, they literally were, were hazing me. I just wasn't getting any of the text messages. And so as I'm walking through the neighborhood, I'm getting like all these messages from my mom that are like, they won. Are you okay? No, seriously. Are you alive? I see all of these electrical wires down in Wrigleyville. You better text me right now and tell me you're okay. So I didn't see a lot of the post-game stuff until later. I will mm. say that when the parade hit and I saw the the duck boat, or, or, or do they call them duck boats here? I don't know. What, that's not what they call correctly. them in Boston. They're not yeah, duck boats here. When I Just, saw the buses, yeah, like right. the, the parade buses. Um, and the one that had Hawk and Sandberg, I lost it. I was just like, they all won. Billy Williams won. Like, it's just yeah. like, they all finally won. And I also lost it because Ernie wasn't there. And I was devastated by that. But that's probably a podcast for another day. Yeah. But that, that's the thing is you think about and Sandberg in those moments and Dawson and Billy Williams are also stand-ins for the guys who couldn't make it that far between Ernie Banks and Ron Santo and hell, even back to, you know, Hack Wilson, Gabby Hartnett, all the guys and the great 30s Cub teams who never made it. And it was it was a symbol of this is what it could have and perhaps in some cases should have been for some of those guys. And the, when you see that they at least get to get to celebrate that moment, like I, I know for Sandberg that that was like his white whale was finally killed in that moment because that's something the, the one thing he'd been chasing after, you know, the MVP, the Hall of Fame, number retirement. That's the reason he came back to manage and spent all that time in the minor leagues and endured those awful seasons with the Phillies. 
somehow thinking he might have a shot at the World Series. And that really was the closest he would ever come to it. And to, to see that he was there when it happened, it, it was it was it was like he got to endure. He had to endure watching the Padres and the Giants celebrate. And now he at least gets to see what happens when the Cubs are the team at the end that gets to do that. And that just that hit me in all the fields and seeing that happen. I think, it, yeah, it's it's kind of worth mentioning, too, especially because the year before he was, I don't want to say forced to resign, but we all kind of knew that was coming from when he was managing the Phillies. So to be able to kind of come full circle and be back at Wrigley celebrating a World Series with these guys, you know, a year later, I mean, that just, to me, that yeah, that definitely was um, pulled at the heartstrings quite a bit. And I do remember seeing him. Um, however, they cut what what I obviously I was in St. Louis, so they cut what I was able to see at the national level pretty short. So I yeah, so I didn't get to see. I saw about as much of the crying on the Indian side as I saw on the Cub side, which you know, not to sound like a horrible person, but it was kind of nice to see them upset knowing that my team was happy. You know what I mean? Like if I couldn't see my team celebrating, then at least I knew the other team was not celebrating that sort of thing. So, but I did not get to see a a whole lot of the clubhouse. I think as a matter of fact, I did not see the Ryan Sandberg visual until like the next day or maybe a day later when they were like replaying some of the, some of the video from, from what they took in the clubhouse. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was almost surreal, honestly, seeing that that Ryan Sandberg actually wearing a champion. That the first time in your mind that you don't just associate World Series champion with him, but you actually see it in front of your face. And uh, let's make it full circle right now and do run this right into the show open before we dig deeper into the topic right now. This is the Three Strikes Year Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, the Outsports Baseball Podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. And I guess we'll refer to it as Comedian on Pause at this point. Uh, <laughs> really comedy in general, and just the idea of laughing is on pause right now. Uh, the other voices you're hearing on episode number 23, the Ryan Sandberg episode of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, are the co-host of one of the best damn cub podcasts in the world, the Cup of Cubby Blue podcast, Sarah, Shanche- Sarah Sanchez and Andy Cruz Vanasek. Thank you both for joining me today, and thanks for coming back. Oh, yeah, happy to do it. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having us. It is delightful to see you guys again, and especially in this context, because we know that, I mean, right now, the obviously we're searching for anything to grasp that sounds like it would be fun or positive to talk to just to get us through the day. And honestly, episode 23 could not have gotten here at a better time for me. Uh, Just because if you want to talk about Ryan Sandberg for an hour, I can't help but smile from the very core of my soul because I am a Ryan Sandberg guy. Like I have two favorite players, Ted Williams and Ryan Sandberg. And I can't imagine that's a combination most people have, but nonetheless, that's those are my guys, have always been. Uh, Teddy is my favorite baseball legend. Rhino is my favorite Cub of all time. And those are kind of equal in my mind. And so on this podcast, we have the two of you. Uh, Sarah grew up in Utah. Andy grew up in Northwest Illinois. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And we're all Ryan Sandberg people. And so I guess the first question I'm going to start out for the celebration when was the first time that you kind of became aware that the Cubs had this incredible player at second base, this this 10-time All-Star, 9-time Gold Glove winner, and somebody who kind of gave you that rare sense of pride watching the Cubs when you were growing up? 
Like, do you have a moment in your mind that you that first clicked that Rhino is the guy? And Sarah, yeah, I know your answer right away. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty damn good one. So I saw this question and I kind of laughed because Andy and I on our podcast, whenever we have guests, Andy, um, borrowing from one of our friends of the show, Rob Nyer, who came on a while back, uh, asks people what their earliest or favorite baseball memory is. And we wind up with some really incredible stories from people about the first time they were cognizant of baseball or how that sort of wove into their life or whatever. And when I answered this question, my answer is the Sandberg game. Like I was sitting on the living room floor at my parents' house. I was like four years old. I was tiny. I do not remember details of this game from that moment. I actually went back and watched it when Marquis showed it uh, recently. And there were so many elements of the game that I didn't remember because I was four and I had no (laughs) idea what was going on. But I also like didn't have a team at that point in time. And I was just kind of doing my own thing. And I lived in a house where we played baseball. We played wiffle ball in the living room and baseball was on on Saturday. And the Sandberg game was the Saturday game of the week. And I was just, I mean, I was hooked. I was like, who's that guy that keeps hitting home runs? Who's that (laughs) team? I'm a Cubs fan and I'm stubborn. So I've been a Cubs fan ever since. And Ryan Sandberg was always my guy. And that didn't work out well for me in the short term, but in the long term, it worked out really, really well. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to say that that is both the best possible first baseball memory anyone could ever have. And also the biggest case of false advertising I have ever seen in my life in terms of what <laughs> life was supposed to be. But man, yeah, I'm just, just I, un- completely understandable. As a four-year-old, you wouldn't have any specific memories, but just the idea that you have memories of sitting in front of that legendary moment in baseball history not just our team's history is is amazing to me and that that's that's such a precious thing to have in terms of what gets you into baseball uh andy do you have a a similar awesome first round of memory well so i have to confess i don't have a specific memory like i don't have an exact point when i remember thinking you know, dear God, I want to be Ryan Sandberg. But that was definitely how I felt. When the Ryan Sandberg game happened, I was in the summer of being five years old. And at that point, I had already been playing t-ball for two years. And um, I mean, I remember this because my my dad and I would have this conversation quite frequently growing up because I was a, a softball player and I played second base. And I played second base because I wanted to be like Brian Sandberg. Hmm. I loved watching. Um, now this is a little bit later on, but I loved watching Sean Dunstan and him turn double plays. Like I can still in my mind, close my eyes and visualize Brian Sandberg with his flip down sunglasses and his hat mid air throwing to whoever's playing first base, Mark Grace, most of the time in my memory. Um, but that was something that like growing up, there was just a moment in time where I decided I wanted to play second base because I wanted to be like Ryan Sandberg. Now that stuck with me. I mean, I played, um, the majority of my life I played second base. I did end up playing some shortstop too, but, um, that was something that stuck with me. And that was just something that I verbalized one time to my dad as a very young girl, five, six years old. And that was something that he was so extremely proud of that his daughter wanted to be Ryan Sandberg. Like that was just unheard of at that time, you know? So yeah, I don't have any one specific memory, but I remember at a very, very early age wanting to be him and wanting to be just like him. That's awesome. And I love that all of our memories, our first memories of the guy all go back to that four or five year old range. And yet even at four or five years old, where we're just kind of know what baseball is in general, 
we all got the sense that this is somebody that's special. This is somebody that we want to emulate, somebody we want to be like on the field. Uh, just and it, it didn't take much watching him to to know that this was somebody who was that kind of guy and who was kind of that that level above everybody else in just about everything he did in the field. I've been watching uh, kind of what you talked about in terms of as a second baseman, uh, getting me through the lack of baseballness of the past couple of weeks ever since opening day. I've been watching old games on YouTube and a couple of old DVD sets I have. And one thing that strikes me about watching him play second base specifically, one of his specialties, it seems like, is at various key moments of the game when the other team is threatening and they've got runners on first and second or one of those bad situations. Multiple occasions, the the guy up at the plate, whoever it is, lines one that looks like it's going right up the middle and going to score at least one or two runs. And the camera flips, and you see instantly he is positioned right there, reaches like it, like pure reflex action, reaches to his right and stabs stabs this line shot. And in that blink of an eye, it goes from run scoring single or two run scoring single into double play situation over out of the inning. And that, I mean, he did, he did that better than any second baseman I can think of. That was, that was why that led to, you know, the nine gold gloves in his career. Uh, so my first Rhino memory, and this is, uh, I've been pulling scorecards from the past couple of days in my collection. Uh, this one goes back to 1984, which uh, I know means nothing to anybody who's listening to this podcast, but it's this old Lee Smith, 35-year-old pod, uh, scorecard at this point. And this is one of the first games I went to as a kid. My dad took me in August 24th of that year, a game against the Atlanta Braves. And my specific memory from this, I was five years old at the time, was that uh, he was teaching me that the Cubs, who would win the division that year for the first time in 39 years, were the best team, which, again, big time false advertising bullshit. But nonetheless, <laughs> that, that's, I guess, lessons in growing for later on in life when you, when you learn what, what pain is supposed to help you improve yourself with. Uh, but <laughs> on the way to the game, he taught me two things, that the Cubs had Ryan Sandberg, the best player in the game, and Rick Sutcliffe, the best pitcher in the game. And so in my little five-year-old hand on the scorecard, in the first inning, uh, Sandberg follows and out by Bobby Dernier, hits a home run in the first inning. So right away, oh, yeah, totally, this is my guy. Uh, later on, drives in Rick Sutcliffe with a double in the seventh, and Rick Sutcliffe pitches a shutout. The Cubs win three to nothing. So in this game, Sutcliffe has pitched a shutout. Sandberg has homered and driven in two of the three runs himself. The Cubs win. These guys are great. My dad is a genius. And from then on... <laughs> That, that is how I, this is what I remember. This is what got me into baseball. And this is all, the entire game from beginning to end is in my five-year-old hand. We, so that means we didn't leave early. This meant that it, I was paying attention the whole time. And I've even written on the corner of the scorecard here, sorry, Braves, you lost. Love, Cubs. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan Snamberg inspired five-year-old smack talk from me in my own scorecard. <laughs> That hooked me. Uh, so, so yeah. And uh, when you talk about 84 and we'll go back now to, to what Sarah dive deep into what Sarah mentioned earlier. Um, the first thing that everybody thinks of when you think of the 84 Cubs and Sandberg is the Ryan Sandberg game, June 23rd of that year. Cubs were, I believe a game and a half out of first place, which was something that people were not used to at that late point in the season. And believe me, I use the word June 23rd and late seriously, even though it sounds like it should be in giant air quotes. Uh, but um, so I guess 
Well, to explain to the listener, for those who don't know the Sandberg game, this is a very famous moment in Cubs history. Sandberg went five for six on that day, which in and of itself is amazing. And most ball players can only dream of a day like that. Sandberg is also known for that in that game for hitting two game tying home runs off of Bruce Suter in the ninth and 10th innings, which kept the Cubs in the game, obviously both times. And they ended up winning in 11. And that's often thought of as the turning point for that year when the 84 Cubs recognized that this was something special that they had put together. And, um, so I guess the question, the first question I'll ask you guys regarding the Sandberg game is outside of random perfect games or no hitters, when else have you ever heard of a game in mid-June having that level of historical importance? It, like, can you, can you think of any off the top of your head that, that comes close to something like that in a, in a long baseball season? I mean, I'll just say that I, th- I felt like th- some of the most recent years that we have um, experienced playoffs, you felt like some of our division games were, were pretty big um, just because, you know, they affect the standing so quickly. You know, you have a team lose a half game and we would gain a half game or vice versa, whatever the situation may be. But you feel like those games, especially recently that, you know, we had kind of taken on this new role of being somewhat of a a top dweller rather than a bottom dweller. Um, Those just had much heavier weight than they had in the past in, in June. And especially with the Cardinals, which ironically is who they played in the Sandberg game. So um, yeah, I mean, you kind of at that point in time and last season is kind of a wash because of, of how the the season went and maybe even the season before It, 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 maybe not as much, but I think you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, you, you felt like those division games in that part of the season, you know, going into the all-star break, you want to go in with some sort of um, a push or some sort of um, momentum grabbing, you know, role. And so for that to, for those games right then, I, I, yeah, I definitely would get a lot more nervous and maybe that's just, you know, since winning the world series, that's my, <laughs> that's my emotional state now at all times when, when, you know, watching the Cubs in, in any part of the season, you just get a lot more nervous for division games. That's, mm-hmm. that's my, my take on it. I just feel like division games were a lot more, more important these days than, than they had ever been. Yeah. And, and being in contention at that point is such a big part of that. As you say, since, uh, it's been, you know, five years, the past five years where it's been contention from almost the beginning of the season. And and that gives those June games that that extra sense of importance. Um, and I think part of what makes that such a unique moment in time, that, that Sandberg game in the 1984 specifically, is that it was a confluence of so many factors. And one of which was the fact that this was meaningful late June baseball for the first time in a couple decades, probably since those late sixties, early seventies teams that came close, but never actually did never actually made it uh, to the playoffs, let alone to a world series. And so for a lot of people, this was the first time that they'd experienced what you just described, where you realizing the importance of that, that moment because of the, because of contention and also realizing that this is what contention means for the first time in your life. Uh, And so that in and of itself makes this particular game bigger than like most other June games would have been just in general. Um, Now, I think that there are also other factors, as you say, Cubs Cardinals is, is a big deal. The Cardinals were also in contention in 84. The Cubs, I think we're dealing with them and the Mets, maybe a bit of the Phillies as well. So when that becomes a signature of 
the Cubs-Cardinal rivalry, that's a huge deal. Um, and the fact that, that you had this, this win over the Cardinals and this kind of bragging rights is, makes it a big deal for Cub fans everywhere. And adding in to all of this as well, it's a national TV game, which in 84 meant something much different than it does now. National TV baseball covered the entire country. It's the, they only had one a week, so everyone in baseball was kind of stopping to watch the game of the week. And add in that you were doing these off of, far and away, the most dominant closer baseball had seen of that era in Bruce Suter. And I've got numbers to back this up. Uh, that was Bruce Suter. 1984 was the second best year of his career. And just kind of 154 ERA, 45 saves. And this is the one that amazes me the most. 4.5 war on the season, which for a relief pitcher now is impossible. Relief pitchers don't pitch enough innings to get anywhere close to that number of wins above replacement. But Bruce Suter put up the numbers of like a middling to good John Lester season in terms of wins above replacement out of the bullpen entirely. And that was the level of dominance that, that Sandberg had solved. And it's, it's, it's amazing to think about. Well, and you can kind of tell, too, if you go back and watch the replay, which I have done a couple times since we had discussed recording this episode, it's just such a um, a fun thing to watch and relive every single time. And you catch different things of it, um, different details of the game every time you watch it. And um, watching Bruce Suter's frustration on the mound for both of those home runs was, I'm not going to lie, pretty awesome <laughs> like, oh god yeah like the snap of the glove and you know you see him mess with his hat and it's like anytime you see a cardinals player of any sort any year be upset or pissed off at the hands of the cubs that is definitely something to make you smile one of my favorite favorite moments and it's it's one that you don't really notice unless you either catch it out of the corner of your eye or you're you're thinking to look for it but if you ever watch a replay of the game the second home run in the 10th inning. Keep one eye on Bruce Suter as Sandberg connects. Because before they cut away to the ball leaving the yard, you get, uh, as soon as the ball leaves the bat, you see Suter turn and just yell a giant, fuck! <laughs> I did not catch that. I will have to go back and look at that. Yeah. You hear, um, I believe it's Bob Costas on the replay that I just watched, the last one I just watched. Um, and he, like, the second the ball is hit, he's like, Oh my God. <laughs> like it was just like, they knew everybody knew the second he hit it, that it was gone, which is just, Oh my gosh. And I'm not joking. Every time I watch that game, no matter where I am, the last time I watched it, I was on the treadmill. I jump, I scream, I pump my fist. I do everything. And just like I'm watching game seven again, it, it's just, it's such an awesome game. And it's, it's such a realization for most of Cubs fans at that point. That is like the moment that they understand that Ryan Sandberg is somebody very special who's going to continue to be special to them for a long time. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's the thing about that game is that it is a life changing moment, a life changing game. And you get to see a ball player's life change before your eyes. And it's, it's that moment to me, the, the moment where you can really pinpoint it even more so than the two home runs is after the 10th the inning is over and they're about to run out to take the field for the 11th and the camera lingers on Sandberg as he charges back onto the field to play second base. And you just hear this roar surrounding him from the crowd. And, and you realize he's gone from somebody who was a really, everybody knew was a good player who had all the tools to 
oh my God, this is the guy that's going to lead us and it's going to take us to this promised land maybe. And it, it, it still gives you chills to watch even 30 some odd years later. Well, even the moment when um, he, I think the one mistake that I've seen um, that I can can say honestly that I feel like was a mistake of, of this game for him was him trying to push that single into a double and getting thrown at it second. But when he runs off the field, there's still a massive cheer for him. And that's still early on in the game. That's before he hits the two home runs. So, yeah, I mean, it, just at that point, you can tell that the fans are starting to, the fans there at Wrigley are starting to catch on to the fact that they're witnessing, witnessing something very special in this young player. Right. What you're referring to is uh, back in the sixth inning, I think it is when he uh, hits a two run single to make it a nine to eight game and bring yes. the Cubs within the one run. And yeah, they throw through, it looks like they're throwing through to home plate, but they cut it off and get him at second. But right. then the, the other run still scores. So it's still a one run game at that point. By the way, we should also mention that that single came close to bringing the Cubs back from a six-run deficit as of the second inning of that game. So that also adds to the, this is making this a unique game and a unique moment. It's also a gigantic comeback, one of the biggest of the year. Uh, and I think it's the anticipation of people realizing that it's it's also that moment of the sixth is when it went from kind of a, we're just kind of kind of have to play this out and endure this beat down to, oh my God, they're back in it. They could possibly maybe maybe take this thing at some point. And the fact that he brought him that close, I think is, is, is inspiring that, that, that kind of crowd reaction and that roar. Well, and I think um, too, it's kind of funny because up until the point of him hitting the, the home run to tie um, the first home run to tie, um, he had the, the announcers, you hear them call it the Willie McGee game or the Ozzie Smith game. And um, which Okay, yes, the, William McGee had an amazing offensive game. Mm. Ozzie Smith had, had a pretty typical Ozzie Smith defensive game and um, I think had three stolen bases, which for him, again, was pretty typical back then. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of funny to me how quickly, and that's a national, I, I believe that's a, a nationally televised game, a national um, broadcast crew. So, um you know, for them to 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 already call it the Willie Mays game or the Willie McGee, not Willie Mays, Willie McGee <laughs> game, um, or the Ozzie Smith game, compared to what Ryan Sandberg had already done up until that point, was it's kind of it's kind of entertaining then to have them switch gears so quickly, um, and have them and then you know, I mean, literally when he hit the second tying home run, they're rolling through all the credits. They're rolling through, you know, who the director is, who the, the all the camera crew is and all this and that and the other. And I'm like, I, cause when we just watched it the other day, I watched my, made my husband watch the end of it. And I was like, they really think this game is over. Like, you know, obviously we know what happens, but I'm like, they really think this game is over. So it's quite entertaining then um, when he goes on to do that. And it's, you know, uh, Always, like I said, a pleasure to see the the St. Louis Cardinals hang their head on a, at the hands of the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, and it's it's not just them either. It, I don't know, Sarah. Do you remember the the crowd shot leading into? I think maybe maybe even would have been Derniers at bat before Sandberg in the tenth inning, where you can see like a whole bunch, hundreds of people getting up and walking into the aisles. And it's it's one of those where uh, you see in retrospect and go, "You're not gonna." think highly of this decision in about one minute. 
<laughs> so I can, you know me, I have rules. Like I go to every game that I can go to and I stay no matter what. And I stay if the Cubs are down 10 and I am waiting for the comeback because you never know when you're going to get to see one of those comebacks. I've been to a few, um, but yeah, I always, I was watching the game recently for, for to prepare for this podcast. And I was like, I was laughing at the same thing. I was just like, okay, great people. Good luck with that decision. You're going to, yeah. you're going to kick yourself yeah. tomorrow. Go beat the traffic, <laughs> go beat the yeah, traffic. That, that, and it's one of the greatest Cubs comebacks of all time. <laughs> yeah. That, that's why you never, ever leave early. Cause I mean, most of the time it's not going to happen, but there is that one time. And if, if you leave when it does, yeah, it, it is the biggest regret as a baseball fan. I can't, can't even imagine like, Walking out of the gates and then suddenly hearing that roar behind you and wondering what just happened. <laughs> stupid, oh. stupid, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> going, going, uh, yeah, the full Chris Farley show. Stupid, dumb, what was I thinking? <laughs> yeah. And speaking of Chris Farley, did you notice this, Sarah, in, in uh, watching the game again, that in the top of the tenth, and oh, Sarah disappeared again, darn it. Sarah is having trouble connecting, so we might have to pause this for a second and put this on break but uh yeah in fact right now let's take a break why not we'll come back here in just a second after doing a quick commercial and we will talk more sandberg game and more sandberg in general and we're back and uh thank you for sticking with us after that little commercial break uh so one thing i wanted to tease uh, that i was leading into the break with last time there was a moment in the top of the 10th inning, and, and you have to kind of rewatch the Sandberg game to in its completion to see it. There was a Steve Bartman reminiscent moment in the top of the 10th inning that you, a lot of people don't really know about. Uh, after Sandberg has brought the Cubs back from six-run deficits and tied the game up in the ninth inning off of Bruce Suter, we go to the top of the 10th. Ozzie Smith leads off, and on the second or third pitch of the at-bat, he skies a foul pop down the left field line right in that same freaky area. Gary Matthews runs over and he leaps at, again, that same general area just at the edge of the bullpen. And there's this guy who looks like Chris Farley at rock bottom. <laughs> like easily 300 pounds, man, wearing a very ill-fitting ill white T-shirt with leather vest and cigarette dangling out of his mouth because 1984. And at the apex of Gary Matthews' leap, the guy makes contact with the ball, and you see it on the replay, and it bounces up and over Gary Matthews' outstretched glove. And he doesn't pull a full-on Moise Salou, but you definitely see that he is pissed off. Like, he leaps and punches the air, and you can tell he thought he had the first out. And then a couple pitches later, Ozzie Smith lines a single, and then Willie McGee, again, as Andy mentioned before, the almost player of the game, drives him in with a double for the go-ahead run, scores later on in the inning, and the Cubs have two runs to make up in the bottom of the 10th. So what I'm getting at here, not only did Sandberg help the Cubs come back from deficits of 7-1 and 9-3, not only did he figure out how to solve the greatest closer of his generation twice and hit the unhittable pitch, Ryan Sandberg slayed Cubs demons before Cubs demons existed. <laughs> I mean, the best part of this game is that Ryan Sandberg just keeps bringing the Cubs back from the precipice of defeat, that they just can't do anything to stop him. And every time Ryan Sandberg comes up, you know that it's going to be okay. And this is actually the thing that made me like little four-year-old me believe in the Cubs over everything. And admittedly for like 30 plus years, I was questioning that life choice pretty heavily, but 
<laughs> you could you just knew that it was going to go the Cubs way and it was awesome. Yeah. And how how many how many games can you say that, let alone I mean, how many years can you ever say you knew things were gonna go the Cubs way outside of like the twenty sixteen, maybe? Twenty fifteen. Yeah. And twenty fifteen. Yeah, that's uh, also twenty six like Middle of 2015 to 2016, there was just this run of Cubs base. In fact, through 2017, too, there was just this run of Cubs baseball where it's like, that's going to be okay. (laughs) In 2015, I remember I have a really good friend who's a Giants fan, and he wrote me and was kind of like, this is it, the showdown between the two. Because there was a four-game series between the Cubs and the Giants at Wrigley. Both were like one game uh, in that out of the wild card race. And he was like, this is the whole season right here. And I was like, okay. And I had tickets to all of these games and I was so terrified that something bad was going to happen. And the Cubs swept the giants and never looked back. It was like the wild card part is ours. This is an odd year. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> done, done in by the powers of mathematics. Yes. And what I remember about that giant series in particular, I went, I was home for that. And I got to go to the final game of that series in person. And seeing the ninth inning of, of that one as they were going for the sweep up uh, two to nothing, trying desperately to hold on to like a lead they'd gotten in the third inning. And Hector Rondon, through a combination of two hits and a hit batsman, loaded the bases and nobody out. And you're thinking, you know, it's been a great series. So part of it's like, you know, if they blow this one, it will be painful and it'll suck. But they've still made a statement against the team that they're trying to take the wild card from. And then Rondon strikes out a pinch hitter swinging. Uh, then strikes out another guy swinging, and then the longest possible at bats that you can possibly conceive of. I forget who it is off the top of my head. I think it was toward the top of the Giants' order, but it goes a good solid eight or nine pitches, and it just foul after foul after foul. And you see Miguel Montero visiting the mound a couple times, just saying, "Keep doing your thing, keep doing your thing." And it's three-two, and you're thinking, "Just, just end this some way, somehow. Just end this at that, and then we'll see what happens." And finally. He, sli- he gets a slider over the plate, and there's this little pause. And I remember seeing Montero pump his fist before the umpire even signaled it was strike three, because I guess he must have verbally uh, announced it first. And then just, again, that explosion that, that, that is similar to Sandberg taking the field and the, the, going into the 11th inning of 84. It's, it's that amazing moment that, that, I mean, you can't really think of a better endorsement from 2015 through 2017 than to think, you know, what if, the Sandberg game lasted 162. <laughs> I'm here for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny because as you're describing all of that, and as we're talking about that moment, that Bartman-like moment at that particular game, all of these things, like I can literally feel my heart race. And I like, I start, I don't know if you guys noticed, I was like, oh my gosh, I can feel my pits getting hot. And like, I'm like getting <laughs> reclimbed. Like it's, it just, it, it's funny to like, even just talking about it, reliving those moments. And I put myself in a place where I remember watching them and I can remember exactly where I was sitting and what I was thinking and who I was with and what I was doing. And it's, it's crazy how those moments stand out to you because those are moments in time that you look back and you're like, in some way, shape or form as Cubs fans, they affect us all differently, but they're definitely defining moments in the history of how we remember the Cubs you know, personally. So it's just funny how talking about that, it like, seriously, it, it gets me into a moment where I'm like, Oh God, I don't know if I can do this again. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so every winter I always try to pick like one of the worst Chicago winter days. One of those days where it's either, you know, 10 below with a minus 30 wind chill or the snow is just raining down from the heavens. And that's the day where I say, okay, today is the Sandberg game day. 
and I pop in my DVD uh, that, that I have of it. And I watch it, I've watched it, I want to say, the last six or seven off seasons every single time, just as this is the day I need the best possible game to get me through. And without fail, as you were saying, once we get to that 10th inning and he makes that connection in that moment and you see the ball rising up and, and clearly leaving the park as soon as it leaves the bat, and my reaction is always, what just happened? <laughs> At this point, I've got practically that entire inning memorized, beat for beat, a strike for strike practically. And even still, yeah, I, I, get, I get teary. And, and I have to take just a moment of, of just like silent mouth agape, just going, ah! <laughs> and, it, and it's not just me either. Like, you, you hear, like, it's not just uh, both sides, uh, TV and radio, the famous calls of the game, the great calls between... Costas and Harry Carey, not just them, but you hear professional color commentators all turn into Ron Santo in that moment. Tony Kubek, you hear, oh my, in the background. And on radio, you hear Lou Boudreau and Vince Lloyd just going, oh! And it's, it's, it's this pivotal moment that everybody recognizes that you have done, pulled off what appears to be the impossible. And it is great and transcendent. And it totally gets me through one of the worst possible days of every January or February this city has to offer every year. And that's the best thing about this game. And moving on, I think, for a bit uh, from it, because when you talk about Sandberg's career in total, I mean, most people obviously go to this game right away because when you have a game called the Sandberg game, it's obvious. And it's a great thing that that is the first, thing, first aspect of his legacy. But you got to wonder that when people bring up the Sandberg game to to him, uh, as fans tend to do from time to time, I've heard, you got to wonder if he ever wants to respond that, you know, I hit a few other home runs in my career, like I think 280 more other home runs. That's not grammatically correct, but nonetheless. Uh, And so my question to you guys, is there an underrated Sandberg stat or an underrated Sandberg moment that kind of springs to your mind when you think of him that goes beyond this incredible epic game that we've talked about? Cause I've got a couple. If, if you want me to share. Can I have one that is a, as a player and one that's as him just as a person? Hell yes. Because Go ahead. my one as a player, like my favorite Ryan Sandberg stat was actually his airless streak, which I followed like, I followed that like I was a kid, like every day, like Ryan Sandberg can't make an error. He never makes an error. (laughs) I Uh just thought that that was the craziest thing, that he was so sure-handed at second base that he could go 123 games without making an error. And that's like mind-blowing, right? That's like, that's not a thing that happens. And you just knew every ball that was getting hit to second was going to go it was an out like it was just an automatic out like that's just all that was going to happen right there um and I yeah that was probably I don't know like I knew he hit home runs and I knew he stole bases and like other things but my favorite thing was his defense and I'm Andy knows this but I'm like very much a defense first (laughs) type of person it's one of the reasons that like second baseman shortstops and catchers just have my heart forever and yeah, that airless streak is probably my favorite non-Ryan Sandberg game uh, memory. I'll do the other one after Andy. Andy, you go. Well, mine is kind of all gone to heck now since um, Sarah used pretty much my entire, what I was going to say, my whole 
there's not one moment that stands out to me as far as Ryan Sandberg is concerned. It was the fact that he was such, and I don't want to say he was underrated, but I think overlooked defensively because of he what he was able to do offensively. And it's funny because growing up, um, you know, most kids are taught when they play the sport of baseball or softball, they're taught to hit and they're taught all the separate fundamentals of hitting. And I've heard way too many coaches, which I think is wrong. And I think it's changed now. But when I was growing up, I've heard way too many coaches say, I have to teach you how to hit because fielding, um, you have to know how to hit because fielding can be taught easier. And which I think is wrong. I think that's wrong in a lot of ways. And people that you see make the most explosive and ridiculous defensive plays. There is a natural ability there. And there is a lot of, um, of a lot of coaching that had gone into what they've learned to be able to do that. Look at Javi Baez, for example. I mean, his footwork on its own, that is so natural. And that is something he probably started doing at a very young age. So um, to not be taught defense, I think was something that um, my dad kind of laughed at when I was younger. And he was like, no, you are going to be solid defensively um, because the, the batting we can figure out we can figure that part out. And I always thought it was crazy because I'm like, first of all, I'm never going to be in a, in a lineup if I can't hit. And for a lot of my career, I wasn't, I was um, a very strong defensive player. I would never, I would always be on the field, whether I was in the lineup hitting or not, I was always on the field. Um, and I always took great pride in that. And that was something that I modeled my game after Ryan Sandberg quite, quite greatly. I, I really appreciated the fact that he was such a solid defensive player. And like I said, he was somebody I could literally now I can close my eyes and I can see him midair throwing a, you know, a, a ball to first base from up the middle. You know, that was something that I always, I just love. I actually have a t-shirt um, of that, that will never be touched. I will never wear that. It still has the tags on it. I mean, it's Wrigley field without the lights. Like that's how cool the shirt is. So um, it was, that was something to me that I always took great pride in and I modeled that after him. And I think that was, like I said, I don't want to say overlooked, but I think it was undervalued because he was such a good offensive player, but his defense was something that like, even to this day, and I know this will shock the people that know me, but I'm a very competitive person. So even when I'm playing <laughs> slow pitch softball at the age of 41, I'm turning double plays left and right. Like still think I'm Ryan Sandberg out there. I mean, I kid you not my, <laughs> my championship game that I played last October, I think we turned six double plays in the, in the final game. And like the, the guys were like, they were like, okay, seriously, Andy, you're going to throw your arm off. You're, you know, 40 years old. Come on, chill out. And I'm like, are you crazy? You're going to have to drag me and my arm off the field. You know, that's just the way that, you know, and that was something that I always just took great pride in. And that came, all came from being a huge fan of Ryan Sandberg and watching him at such a young age and valuing that aspect of his game. Because I think, you know, like we, we joke about it now. We, you know, we'll say defense wins games but you have to score to win, but defense really does win games. You just have to score one more run than the other team. It's just, and so that, that aspect of him has always been something that I have really valued. And yes, the offensive side is very nice and it's very pretty and it's sexy and people love that side of it. But I, for me, I'm a defense girl and that's, that's what got me to love Ryan Sandberg to begin with. Yeah. If they drag your arm off the field, they'll have to dip it in gold first, I think. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I I would reattach it first. Yeah, yeah that's fair. We'll, we'll get it back to you. It is, after all, yours. I have plans for the arm for still a few more seasons yet. So, nice. <laughs> right. but, uh, And to your points, when you talk about 
working on defense and defense being something that you can work on and improve. Sandberg, whenever he has talked about his game, will always mention that back in his day, they always took infield every day in addition to batting practice before the game. And he'll without fail bring up that he would always take 50 ground balls right at him, 50 to his left, 50 to his right, because he had to get not just physically, but mentally prepared to field everything hit his way. And so he, he would agree with you about defense being something that you've got to work on to that extent in order to get to that level. And to get back to what Sarah mentioned earlier, not only is 123 games, does it, was it something important when all of us were a kid and he was putting it together in 89 and 1990, I remember where I was the moment that streak broke, that that was after uh, my sixth grade musical performance where I sang Gary, Indiana to a crowd of 50 not bored parents. Uh, <laughs> and we went out, my parents took me out afterwards to, uh, there was a Sluggers located in Vernon Hills. And we decided to go out there to have a little post-show celebration. And I remember they had the Cubs game. It was in the Astrodome, I'm pretty sure. Um, and no, they had I blame the, Cubs the game Astros. On. I blame the Astros. This Absolutely. is the Astros' fault. You, you heard the trash can banging and you knew something was wrong as soon as he fielded the ball. And uh, yeah, I, I remember like even in the middle of, of talking to my parents and my grandparents, seeing on the big screen uh, uh, overhead uh, and playing, uh, playing for everybody to see, you saw him field the ball and make the throw and it just went awry. And even, you know, as I was celebrating my show and or my contribution to the show, I thought, oh, shit, there goes the streak. And so it, it, it was big enough at that point to imprint itself on me when it ended. And even, uh, in, you know, 11-year-old me realized this is, this is a crowning achievement of his career. And the Sandberg underrated part that I wanted to talk about, I actually was digging through, as I mentioned in the first half, a few old scorecards to find fun games that I went to as a kid that he was heavily involved in. And while you can't replicate the Sandberg game in one game, because it's, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime for, you know, one-player amazing achievement. I managed to pick a couple games where you can kind of choose your own Sandberg game adventure a little bit, uh, where I went to a game in uh, June of, June 27, 1990, against the Expos. And I'll just quickly read you the Sandberg line here. First inning, solo home run. Second inning, single run scored. Fourth inning, ground out to third, whatever. Seventh inning, solo home run. So... Three for four, three home runs, two RBI, three runs scored. Cubs win five to three over the Expos. And he contributed basically the entire thing. And that's one of those games where you're going as a kid and you're realizing that this is my guy. The first inning you see the first home run, you think, already, my guy's having a great day. The second time he hits a home run in the seventh, it's like, this is a special game that I have just seen. Like, it, it kicked it up an extra notch in my mind. And uh, even going back, you know, 30 years later, I look back and, and still can kind of picture that in my mind, the, the ball leaving the yard and thinking, this is an incredible game, and I'm so glad I'm here. And the second one, and this one is about more about the drama uh, that was similar to the Sandberg game. There was a series in late July of 1992 against the Pirates, and then there's no reason to remember the 92 Cubs. They were <laughs> Greg Maddox, Cy Young, incredible season from Sandberg, and Derek May, nothing else. <laughs> But there was a little moment at the end of July uh, where they had a three-game series with the division-leading Pirates, where going into the series, we thought, if they sweep the Pirates, they are mathematically back into this thing. They could be three and a half out with two months to go, and who knows what could happen. Spoiler alert, we knew what could happen. <laughs> 
but they won the first two of the series. So going to the third game is the one that I saw in person. And this was, you know, everybody was excited because you're thinking you get this sweep and, you know, Cub fans, it doesn't take much to get us to start dreaming. So this was a game where Frank Castillo got bombed early, gave up a home run to Barry Bonds in the second, gave up three in the third. The Cubs were down four nothing after three. And it just kind of stayed there, very listless through almost the entire game. It was four to one in the seventh, uh, where there was a leadoff double and then an RBI single. So it was four to two. So you're thinking, okay, this might be the shot. And then Sandberg gets up uh, after Sammy Sosa strikes out and crunches one all the way to the back of the bleachers in left field, ties it up at four. And I remember the entire park realizing, okay, we are now back in this thing. The sweep is conceivable. Maybe this season is still conceivable. And I remember thinking as that game went along that if they get Sandberg up again, they got another shot. And in the ninth inning with two outs, he singled, stole second, but Grace flew out to left. But you're still thinking, okay, well, now I've got, got to cycle through the entire lineup again. Get Rhino back up there. And I remember going into the 11th, it was still tied at four at that point. And just thinking, okay, Sandberg is, if anybody gets on, Sandberg's due up again. And so that was my thought. That was my thought. Just get him up. Get him up. So after there was a walk with one out, and Sammy Sosa was right, right ahead of Sandberg at the time. And I'm thinking, just whatever you do, don't hit, do a double play. Just get him up. And it's at that point where Sosa hits the walk-off bomb, and the entire part goes batshit. And it's like, okay, well, we didn't need it, but I'm glad he was there. But that was, again getting to watch Sandberg tie it in the late innings and set up that magical moment. And I still remember to this day, leaving Wrigley Field, that incredible sense of hope that everybody had, like it was a celebration walking toward the Cubby Bear down Clark Street. That the people were legit thinking that they got a shot and that was the high point of the year, but it's still imprinted in my mind from what's otherwise a meaningless season. This is one of the most memorable, memorable games I've still ever seen in person and one of the most exciting. And he played a huge Sandberg game-esque part in that one so just wanted to kind of put those two together and let you know that uh it, even even games that are otherwise lost in mediocre seasons are still magical thanks to what he did and what he meant to me yeah i mean you were talking before about the preparation he did like 50 ground balls to the left to the right taking infield every day and that brings me back to my other ryan sandberg favorite moment that is not the Sandberg game, which is his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. So for people who like don't know this about me, I I share it on BCB all the time, but um, I coached high school debate. So I spent years teaching students how to argue and advocate for themselves and speak in public and all that jazz. And we opened every season listening to that speech. And it's not just Hmm. because Ryan Sandberg is my favorite baseball player of all time it's because it's such an it's actually listed in the 100 greatest speeches in american history which is one of those things that people don't realize and you wouldn't expect from a man who is so notoriously shy with the press and with speaking out like he was never the one who was out there trying to get all the attention or do all the endorsements or anything like that but it was right after the steroid era and you could sort of see a lot of frustration Um, from some players and he really just gets up the whole speech is about respect and respecting the game and respecting the players and how privileged baseball players are to get to play every day and how there's more respect in knowing how to move a runner over with a bunt than there is in hitting 40 home runs and then striking out all the time it is a phenomenal speech I highly recommend that everybody listen to it if you have not Um, most Baseball players, when they get into the Hall of Fame, just kind of stand up and they thank the people who got them there and they cry a little bit and they're honored and then they sit down. And Ryan Sandberg, one of the most 
quiet baseball players of my lifetime, quiet hero, chose to use that moment to say some words that really needed to be said that were hugely important and impactful. And he's not the world's best public speaker, but he has one of the 100 greatest speeches in American history. Talk about stepping up in the clutch. And I was there. I, I made the trip to Cooperstown for the Hall of Fame induction because oh, Sandberg awesome. is also kind of my Grateful Dead. And as, as you just said, I fully anticipated that the speech was just going to be like 15 minutes of, I love baseball. Here are a bunch of names of my teammates. Here are some names you've never heard of. And we'd still give him a standing ovation because it was his moment and we were there to share it. And I remember the feeling of watching that speech as it transpired because about five minutes in, there was a sense of, oh, he's kind of got something to say a little bit here. And then about 10 minutes in, he is nailing it. And 15 minutes, he just told a joke and it worked. <laughs> what? And, and again, it, it was, I guess, similar to the pattern of the famous game we've been talking about where it just kind of hit everybody that we were here for a special moment and we got to see this special moment in person. And it, it really was a great day. It, it turned out it, he pulled it out. Uh, everybody was there to see him, but he so went so far above and beyond our expectations that there was a sense just leaving the induction site that we were just like, what was that? And I, I'm blown away. I did not, did not know that this was there. And to your point about it being a message to baseball, the very next day was the day they announced that Raphael Palmero was suspended for testing positive. So it was like, yeah, kind of knew what he was talking about a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. There was uh, oh, do you want to talk, Andy? I'm sorry. About, no, I was about just going to say, uh, you know, in in the speaking of of how Ryan was so quiet and he was kind of one of those, you know, put his head down and go to work types. And you could see that, you know, when you're watching the replay of a game like the Ryan Sandberg game where he basically it's like another day in the office. He takes care of business and then puts his head down and runs on the field like he's anybody else. You know what I mean? It was just complete, um, this is just, this is what I expect to do every time I'm up at bat. This is what I expect to do every game I play. You know, it kind of, for the folks that are listening that may not have been so lucky as to been able to see him in his heyday playing and doing what he was doing, it's kind of um, a, a very similar feeling to like a Chris Bryant, I want to say, because nowadays people are so, um, you know, Chris Bryant is so vanilla and that sort of thing because there's not a whole lot to him. Well, back in the day, all you had to do was be good at baseball and you were, you were amazing. You were awesome. That was all you needed to do. You didn't have to have this big personality. You didn't have to be flashy. You didn't have to have, you know, any gimmicks or anything like that. You could just be someone like a Ryan Sandberg who put his head down and did the work and was good at what he did. And that's all you had to do. And you were phenomenal. Nowadays, somebody like Chris Bryant, you know, because in this day and age, they're trying to make baseball a little bit more exciting for people because it's not what it used to be. Um, but that's kind of the same for somebody who was not able to see a Ryan Sandberg. If you're talking about the kind of player he was, that's kind of what I feel like is a good comparison. And, and just hearing you and Sarah talk about that, as far as I don't know that he would stand up and give a Hall of Fame speech like that. I can't say anything to that. But what I mean is just the kind of, you know, vanilla player. He doesn't have much person. I mean, he does have personality, but he didn't put it out there a lot. That's not what I meant. Obviously, if you follow his Instagram, you know he has personality. Yeah. Um, like poor KB. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying because he is not somebody who is 
you know, constantly in the eye of the media, constantly saying the most outrageous things. Although last year he did kind of shoot down my theory when he called St. Louis boring. But (laughs) what I mean in the sense of, you know, being on the quieter side, not having a whole lot to say and, and putting his head down and playing playing the game of baseball and we know he's a hard worker I mean we hear stories all the time about how him and his dad the stuff that he and his dad Chris Bryant he and his dad would do and we know that Ryan Sandberg didn't get to where he was not working hard so I think it, it, a fair comparison in that sense and obviously not comparing every aspect of their game and I know people will you know some people are going to be smacking their heads saying what is she doing you can't compare those two I know there's a lot of differences and the, the the era of baseball also makes that different too but I I just like that comparison as far as like being a quiet um introverted player that played the game yeah, the way uh, that I think they that's play. an comparison yeah. uh, in that they're both baseball stoics on the field, that they both have kind of the same way of carrying themselves. And I think, honestly, a baseball stoic, there's room to celebrate them in the game because it's they're the ones, they make the Javi Baez's of the world look even more interesting and even more fun. And as long as you're being true to yourself, and you know that Chris Bryant and Ryan Sandberg are being true to themselves on the field, there's nothing wrong with being a guy who hits the ball 400 feet, then puts your head down, then runs the bases. Just as there's nothing wrong with Javi celebrating every time he achieves something and does a Javi play that's amazing. And I think it's the fact that you can have both types and have them kind of set each other off as a point of comparison that makes the game of baseball just more interesting in general. I think it would be a very dull game either way if you had nothing but Stoics or even nothing but guys who talked themselves up or celebrated themselves at every opportunity. I I think... When you have that balance of both, that makes it the most compelling watch to me. And it's it's the guys who are most true to themselves. And that's being true to yourself, I think, is the thing that's most worth celebrating. And on that subject, uh, before we wrap up this this really great discussion, guys, that there is one moment uh, in particular of Sandberg's that I wanted to celebrate that also kind of gets a little bit under the radar. And this was on his Instagram back in 2016, which, as you both know, Ryan Sandberg is like the best Instagram grandfather. Uh, on the internet now or on, uh, on, on the app. But in 2016, um, and this is only a couple of years after I had come out to my family and my friends, like I was pretty much fully out at that point. I was doing like regu- regularly talking about it for 10 minutes on stage. So it was already at that point a part of my life, but only two years from the point in my life where it was still the scariest discussion I've ever had with anybody. And in June of 2016, on Ryan Sandberg's Instagram, there popped up two pictures of Sandberg representing the Cubs at the Pride Parade in Boys Town. There was one of him and his wife, Margaret, uh, where the Pride Parade's going off in the background, and you see guys in rainbow tank tops and a couple guys in, I guess you call it those peacock balloons, where it's all the rainbow-colored balloons behind them. And then the other is of himself uh, on the Cubs Pride float with guys wearing Cubs Pride T-shirts. And that was a moment for me thinking of, you know, the 1980s and 1990s were not the most open-minded era in baseball history, I'll say, in terms of (laughs) diversity and inclusion. That uh, I mean, that was the era where Dave Pallone got kicked out of umpiring essentially because he was gay. So I I don't expect any player of that era to have, you know, very progressive thoughts when it comes to the community. But seeing Sandberg representing the Cubs at the Pride Parade in that day there was just this incredible feeling of not not just warmth, although warmth was a big part of it, just, just seeing that and realizing that, man, 
my guy is about inclusion and, and about stepping up and about representing to, to my, my community and who I am. But there was also just this real sense of, man, you chose your baseball hero right. And God, that was such a great feeling. And, and from the bottom of my heart, that, that's one of the things that I would thank him for the most if I ever got a chance to meet him in person. Because it, it was, it was a, a small gesture, but a really, really special gesture to see not just the Cubs there, because every team now has a floating pride, but to see my favorite Cub of all time being there for the community and, and being there for me, even though I wasn't there, it, it felt like in a way. And it was just a special thing and says a lot about him as a person, too, I think. I will say this. I, I actually live um, on the Pride Parade route in Chicago, and so I can I like go downstairs and watch it from the street every year. But when it gets a little too hot or crowded or if it rains or like st- thunderstorms like last year, I can go upstairs and watch watch the floats come down through my window. Um, but the I wait every year for the Cubs Pride float, and every year it makes me cry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um one of the things that I, I mean, I'm sure your listeners know, but a lot of people maybe don't know is that the Cubs have the original pride night in baseball. It's called out at Wrigley and it's the outgrowth of the fact that Wrigleyville and Boys Town abut each other. Like you literally walk from down Addison towards Halstead into Boys Town in Chicago. And one of my favorite things about living in this neighborhood is pride weekend, because if the Cubs are in town or anything's going on, you can see this, you can walk down past Wrigley or leave a game and you basically come from the broiest baseball crowd in the history Uh of history. And within two blocks, you are in the middle of usually the pride festival. They don't do the parade when the Cubs are in town because that would be a logistical nightmare. But um, we have multiple pride weekends in Chicago because we do lots of things like that. That's just the way we are. But anyway, because of that, Uh, Long before there were Pride Nights all over America, there was out at Wrigley, which was the night that the the gay fans would gather and all come together in the bleachers and hang out um, at Wrigley Field. And now the Cubs have their official Pride Night in June, and they're still out at Wrigley every August or September. So uh, there's no excuse to not celebrate Pride at Wrigley Field. (laughs) Yeah, that means something to me that we have two pride nights the official team one and then the one where they partner with the neighborhood and yeah that that does give me i mean pride is almost an overused word in this context but it does give me pride as a gay man as a, and a cub fan which is a new twist on the harry curry phrase <laughs> i was just it, gives me pride as, it gives me pride as an ally so i just think that every yeah. year it just it warms my heart my favorite cubs hat is my cubs pride hat i wear it all june and occasionally on other occasions, like when the Cubs signed Daniel Murphy and I decide that I'm just going to wear my Cubs pride hat every day that Daniel Murphy plays for the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, the one game I saw of Daniel Murphy in person that I, uh, for my Instagram story, I took videos of every time he walked up to bat and then I put uploaded them on the story and tagged them better Daniel Murphy walk up music and set him to Lady Gaga's Born This Way and It's Raining Men and uh, <laughs> Freedom 90 by George Michael. So. Yeah. I was just going to say, there's no, there's no better way to, to say it than just to say that, you know, Ryan Sandberg, while he has a place in all of all three of our hearts for being an amazing Chicago cub, he could not be a better human being either. And I think that is um, that should just 
reaffirm your whole um, your whole decision making process there with making him your hero because just all around he is he is a, a, a fabulous human being and and a pretty awesome Chicago Cub too. Yeah, class act gets thrown around all the time when people talk about him, and then you see him do something like that in public, and you realize, yeah, there's a reason for that, and it's completely apt. And so, yeah, this has been a great discussion, guys. Uh, before we go, do either of you have a book re recommendation for any of our social distancing listeners off the top of your heads? One of the things that I've been doing at Bleed Cubby Blue uh, is documenting a life without baseball. That's been sort of my thing um, for the last few weeks while we sort of get used to this new pandemic reality and trying to figure out when and if there will be baseball again. But as part of that, I found this book uh, called September 1918, War Plague and the World Series. And that book is a really good read. Uh, if you want to know what it was like in 1918 as World War I was descending while the World Series was happening and influenza was gripping the country. And for those of you who do not know and are Cubs fans, that World Series was the Cubs and the Red Sox. And it has a whole bunch of fascinating details. I will not spoil them, uh, but definitely check out 1918 War in the World Series. Awesome, man. Couldn't be more appropriate for this moment in time. Uh, do you have one, Andy? Well, I don't actually. I was just looking through and I can't even remember the last time I picked up a Cubs book. I know. Please don't take my fan card. That is horrible. I would like to recommend, though, reading Sarah's diary going back to day one and starting. That actually might be the best book ever. So someday, Sarah, you're going to have to compile those and make that a book. But I would recommend going back and reading those um, those day-to-day -day diary entries because I'll tell you what. In the grand scheme of things, five years from now, when we look back and we have something like that to refer to on what this world has been like without sports and everything else and what Sarah has gone through and what different people have gone through, it is, it's going to be quite the most fascinating book. So I highly recommend re going back and reading that and keeping up with it as she goes because it, it's, been, it's been awesome to follow. Yeah, the Day Without Baseball posts have been really, really well done, Sarah. And they're providing a historical moment in time right now. You're, you're in real time documenting what this is about. And yeah, in you know, 10, 15 years even, this is going to be something we go back to and reference and just it's going to call up you know, what this moment was. And you're so, yeah, you're doing something that's well-written and super important in this time right now. Y'all are going to make me cry. That's so sweet. <laughs> I am... Um... If anybody listening to the show is a publisher, get in touch with me. No, just kidding. Uh, I, just, I just felt like it was important to have. Um, I, I felt like it was a unique moment, and I just wanted to be able to know what I thought each day as it was going on. And I don't know how long it's going to go, so uh, I'll keep them going until we have baseball back, and we'll see what happens. I will, I will link to those blogs in the episode description and on Twitter when I put, put this out on Friday. Uh, my book I'm going to talk about for a second is called Bleachers, A Summer in Wrigley Field by Lonnie Wheeler. And this is one you got to go to a used book dealer like Abe Books for, but it's only like five bucks there and well worth it because Lonnie Wheeler was a Sports Illustrated writer and in 1987 decided to watch every home game that year from the bleachers. So it's both a diary of that season and kind of you get to see like Andre Dawson just go off every day, which in and of itself is great, great reading. But it's also about the people that he surrounded himself with in the bleachers. So there's a lot of discussion about like a lot of the old, old guard that's been there for generations from going back to like probably the 50s and 60s uh, up to the present day. And those are the, the conversations with them are the best. And then there are other ones you talk. He talks to some of the guys who have like bleacher gimmicks, like bleacher preacher 
Uh, I think he avoids Ronnie Woo Woo, and that's really better off just for everybody. And uh, even Sarah's lead cubby blue mate, Al, shows up in a couple of vignettes, and he's there as kind of the uh, bringer of historical and trivial minutia. And it's just a really great read and a great glimpse into what it was like being a Cub fan of that era and specifically a Cub fan in the bleachers of that era. And definitely worth your time as we all kind of miss being in the bleachers in this era right now. And uh, so on this note, guys, uh, we have talked more about Ryan Sandberg in this episode than I think he has done throughout the entirety of his career. And it has been <laughs> phenomenal. Uh, anything you'd like to plug while you're still here? Uh, no, this is great. Thanks so much for having us, Ken. It was awesome. If you all are intrigued by Cubs banter and Andy and I, you can find us at, at Cup of Cubby Blue, and our podcast is on Bleak Cubby Blue. And that is a must listen every week. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Ken. Thanks.